Psalm 94 and 95. We're going to do two psalms this morning. That they are appropriately positioned next to each other. You've got to remember that the psalms are the hymn book of the nation of Israel. And when they would be together and, and want to worship the Lord, they would go to the psalms. And so we're really studying their hymns. There's a whole range of emotions in the psalms loaded there. Obviously, we're going to be in a couple of today where praise to God is called for, but also Psalm 94 is going to be a call for uh, the Lord to exact vengeance. Psalm 93, if you remember when you went through Psalm 93 together, uh, was a very strong statement about the Lord reigning. And then Psalm is a statement of the Lord reigning. Then Psalm 94 is a call for vengeance, obviously with with the uh, bad guys seemingly having the upper hand at the time. And then Psalm 95 through 100 seem to be, well, they're called, some call them the kingdom psalms. They, they, they say, you know, let us sing to the Lord. Psalm 96 is uh, sing to the Lord. Psalm 97 is the Lord reigns. Psalm 98, sing to the, sing to the Lord a new song. Uh, Psalm 99, the Lord reigns again. Psalm 100, make a joyful shout to the Lord. All about praising the Lord as he reigns. And so there seems to be a little bit, maybe even a, a mystical prophetic pattern in that, you know, the statement of we know that the Lord reigns and then there's this uh, time where the bad guys have the upper hand and then there's these kingdom psalms. Eh, maybe there's something there. But um, uh, Psalm 94, 95 seem to go together well. And so we're going to look at both of them this morning. In the history of uh, Israel, Psalm 93 was part of their weekly liturgy. They would read Psalm 93 on Fridays in the morning during their uh, sacrifices and their uh, reading of God's word. Psalm 94, Psalm 93 was on Friday. Psalm 94 was uh, on Wednesdays. They would, they would read Psalm 94 every Wednesday in the morning. A cry for, uh, for vengeance from God, uh, that God would exact vengeance Let's read verses 1 through 3 there. It says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs. O God, to whom vengeance belongs. It's repeated. Shine forth. (coughs) Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? And so uh, the, the cry for vengeance. There's been an injustice, a big shot of injustice handed out. And the writer is asking God to make things right. You know, that's, that's common place, um, has always been for those who follow the Lord. You know, it's kind of sometimes hard for us to, to grasp this in its full strength because we're just not all that persecuted here. Things just really aren't that bad for us in the United States here. I think it could be far worse in the future. I think that's a real possibility as, you know, more and more ungodliness gets kind of thrown into our face in an intentional way. Um, I think there's just a, there'll, there'll be more of that in the future. But, you know, these psalms of asking God for vengeance, they mean a lot to people who are in, uh, you know, very hostile countries, uh, countries where, you know, the, the government turns in a deliberate blind eye or even encourages um, the persecution and the heavy persecution of Christians. These kinds of, this psalm, it means a lot to them. Asking God for vengeance. Um, but, you know, right there it says asking God for vengeance, not asking permission to go and exact vengeance. 
So scripture tells us plainly that vengeance belongs to the Lord. God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And that's a clear statement from him that we need to uh, yield to and let the Lord work out those places where injustice has been done to us. And we've been handed a big dish and a big helping of pain and suffering from the ungodly. It's, you know, it's of our nature to, to, to want to strike back. You know, you just want to jump on them and pound on them. Um, but, uh, you know, the Lord says, no, vengeance is mine. And there's good reasons for that. Uh, the chief among them is that we just don't have the wisdom or the depth of perspective or the control um, to be able to administer vengeance wisely. Because we just want to react in our flesh and, and again, extract our pound of flesh. Um, but, you know, what's going on might be much larger than just our discomfort and our, and our pain. The Lord might be doing something much, much larger uh, with those other people or where, the, where it came from. Maybe that there's, you know, the Lord's working something out that we just don't know of. I mean, really, that's what happened to us a lot of times. A lot of you have, a lot of us have that kind of testimony where we were rotten people. And, you know, uh, we didn't get what we deserved. And in the midst of that, there was a path that the Lord was leading on us, leading us on. And it came about that we came to the Lord. And, um, you know, if we jump in there now as believers and start to take those vengeance matters into our own hands, we could derail something that the Lord is doing that we would just have no idea of. And if we leave it in the Lord's hands, that's an act of faith on our part. To say, Lord, I understand, you understand that this is, you know, very painful to me, to us. Something that's really bad happened, and we're just going to commit it to you, that in your time, and your way, you'll work this out in a manner that, well, when we get there and we see it, you'll, we'll be able to say, yeah, Lord, you did the, exactly the right thing in the right way at the right time. And I'm glad I didn't take it in my own hands. Because that high thing, that good thing that came out of that, I might have derailed that completely. Um, you know, the um, uh, Lord wants to handle those things that concern us, and vengeance is one of them. We've got to commit it to him. Um, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Um, so we had, we had to commit ourselves to give it over to the Lord. Um, it says in verse 4 through 7, it talks about the ungodly who are, um, who are committing these acts. It says, They utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. Yeah, that's the way it is, right? Uh, um, they are very confident in their own positions and their own thoughts and their own understandings. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Okay, well, now they're, now they're stepping into territory the Lord takes very personally. In the scriptures, God says over and over again that he has a special place of concern for the fatherless, orphans we would call them, and widows. Um, you know, that those are two... Uh, you know, classes of people that are very, very vulnerable. Uh, kids without parents and then uh, widows. Uh, you know, in, in their uh, society, um, you know, you didn't have 
parents to take care of you or a, a, a male adult could provide for the family, wow, you were you in free fall. And so to go and to step on those classes of people with, with some injustice, the Lord, Lord takes, puts special attention into that matter. And so he takes this uh, at, a, at a level that's um, personal to him. Yet they say, the Lord doesn't see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Now, there's two ways of interpreting that. It could be that they're saying, from an argument standpoint, yeah, yeah, God sees God. He sees something, right? And, uh, and it's sort of a mocking sort of way of saying, there's no God. You know, you've heard the argument from, from atheists, kind of the militant atheists these days. The, the argument goes like this. If God exists, well, he's not God. You know, if anything like that exists, he's not God. Because look at the evil in the world. Evil, either he, he doesn't do anything about it, and so that means either he, he doesn't have the power to do anything about it, or he doesn't know about it. And so what kind of God is that? And so by default, there is no God. You, get, you know, as you step into the college campuses, you'll get that pretty, uh, pretty straightforward fashion. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, that's really a self-defeating argument um, when you think about it. You presuppose God to prove that he doesn't exist. Um, that, that really, you kind of shoot yourself in the foot with that argument. Because um, you're saying, really, you're saying there is a perfect way in which justice ought to be done. There is perfect justice. There is perfect judgment out that we can weigh this situation against. But how could, how could you know that this is injustice without you know, this perfect thing? And so you're admitting that God exists to prove he doesn't exist. You, you get the kind of the backward, self-defeating thing that that is. Um, really, all you're doing at that kind of argument is proving that Satan exists. And so it's really kind of a, 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 a very, very flawed thing to say. Um, I think, though... The way this is probably better understood when, he, when they say the Lord doesn't see and the Lord, the God of Jacob doesn't understand. The argument would go, I think a, a little more clarity would go like this. Um, yeah, God exists, you know, and you kind of admit him being the creator in that, but he can't see what's going on. He doesn't see what's going on. He doesn't understand what's going on. He's not paying attention to it. The information isn't getting to him. He doesn't hear that's completely irrational also. Um, and the guy explains it this way and, and gives about this in verse 8 and through 11. He says, Understand you senseless among the people and you fools. When will you be wise? Here's his argument, an argument from creation and just your own body. He who planted the ear, he who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? So you admit that there, God exists, but then you're going to say the one who created you and gave you the ability to hear, he has no ability to hear himself? Where did he get the idea to, to give you hearing if he cannot hear? That doesn't make any sense. And, and um, you know, I never miss an opportunity to, um, to put out the glories of God's creation through looking at the natural things. So... 
Sorry for the biology lesson this morning, but without further ado, let's talk about your hearing and the wonders of it. Um, your ears, like it says here, are planted. You, you know, you just have these lobes out here, so, kind of planted there. Some are a little sprouted, a little more than others. But, um, um, you know, these, are, these, these lobes here are especially formed so that they can collect sound. And you can get a directional feel for sound. With, with very little separation, um, you can triangulate very accurately, um, audibly. But more than that, as the sound makes it in through the, through the inner ear, you know, it, it's, it, the, the hearing mechanisms are, are amazing. Um, once the sound gets through, uh, your, the sound waves get through your middle ear, they strike the eardrum. You know, it's just little pressure waves, very, very small pressure waves of air get in there and make that little eardrum vibrate. And you've got the three smallest bones in your body that don't grow. When you get them as a baby, they don't get any bigger. And they are uh, carefully arranged, very fragile, very specific format, so that they take those tiny little vibrations of air and multiply that 22 times. So it, sends, it sets up a standing wave um, format inside that spiral cochlea inside your ear in a fluid and then these tiny little sensors smaller than human hairs register those standing waves in an electrical format and send them to your brain into the, the core of your brain into the uh, cerebellum where it's processed at a, at a fundamental level and then uh, it passes that information on to the, uh, the next level of your brain and then it gets these higher orders of of uh, hearing going on, not just hearing, but understanding. Because you can, you hear sound and you have a historical register of sound so that allows you to sift out what is important and what not important. You hear a car go by and you don't think anything of it. You hear the plane going overhead or a, you know, a, a, a car horn or something, and you don't think anything of it. But you have other sounds that, that immediately put you to alarm. You have a historical database in your brain, loaded chemically, that, that, that we're trying, still trying to understand. Um, uh, the hearing there, um, it's planted in your head there. You know, the, the, they study, the, when, they, when they do the intricate studies of, of brain waves and stuff, they know that music uh, has a special place in, its, in your brain for processing that's unique. And nothing else goes there but music. In fact, music can physically change your brain. Now, now try to explain that evolutionary, from an evolutionary standpoint. You can't. Um, the ears have been, like it says here, planted in a, in a dramatic fashion. Um, you can input, but you're going to say that God invented this and he doesn't hear? It's not rational. But then it says also, he who formed the eye, shall he not see? Um, you know, the eyes, we're, we're wired for sight. Um, the eye may be the most impressive aspect of your sensory input. Um, you have over 200 million working parts in your eye. Um, um, the eye is a marvelous instrument. Um, you know, it resembles a telescope. Um, in a, a, it's got a high-quality lens. 
Uh, it's got adjustable focus. Um, it's got a variable diaphragm for controlling the amount of light. It's got optical corrections to keep that focused. Um, uh, the, the eye appears to be designed, and, and evolutionists know that. And they struggle with how to explain how this came about through random oper operations of chance. Um, you know, there's two large-scale things that are going on in your eye. There's, there's, the, there's the light collection and control and focus, um, your cornea, your iris, your lens, it's all automatic. But then um, the really amazing part is after that. Um, and I'm going to read from um, a, a guy by the name of Alan Gillen. He says, uh, in his Body by Design, he says, the most comp amazing component of the eye is the film, which is the retina. This light-sensitive layer at the back of the eyeball is thinner than a sheet of plastic wrap and is more sensitive to light than any man-made film. The best camera film can handle a ratio of 1,000 to 1 photons in terms of light, light intensity. By comparison, human retinal cells can handle a ratio of 10 billion to 1 over the dynamic, dynamic range of light waves that we can see 300, and, well, I'll give you that. Um, the human eye can sense as little as a single photon of light in the dark. In bright daylight, the retina can bleach out, turning its volume control way down so as not to overload. The light-sensitive cells of the retina are like an extremely complex high-gain high gain amplifier that is able to magnify sounds more than a million times, if you were making an audible analogy. Uh, four types of nerve cells. I know you came for a biology lesson this morning, didn't you? Uh, <clears throat> four types of nerve cells, as well as structural cells and pigment cells in your eyes. Uh, there's two kinds of photoreceptor cells, referred to as rods and cones. You've heard of that. Each eye has about 130 million rods and 7 million cones. Um, but here's the interesting thing. Oh, this is what I forgot to say about sound. When you think of... I'm going to go back and talk about the ear for just a second. Um, when you think about... What's going on in the ear? It tells you something. Sound only exists in your brain. Because out, outside your brain, it's only the movement of airwaves. You know, sound only exists in your, in your mind and in your brain. Let's get back to the, let's get back to the eyeball. Um, as light comes into your eyes, it's focused on the retinas and immediately goes into your brain because the optic nerves are part of your brain. You know, the eye itself, it's got this special... Uh, fluid that keeps it moist and keeps it from drying out, but it also contains a little oil in there so that, so that you can move your eyeball and it doesn't go back and forth. Um, uh, the fastest muscles in your body are in your eye. That's why we say in the blink of an eye. It's the fastest thing you can do. Um, but when it comes to light processing, think about what happens. The light hits that film in the back of your eye and then you know that those optic nerves cross in your brain, right? Half of it goes, your right eye goes to your left side, your left eye goes to your right side, and yet that's seamlessly integrated. But think about it also. You're seeing that light is taking in a two-dimensional image in the back of your eye, and yet you see it in three dimensions flawlessly. They still don't know how that, how the, the researchers still don't know how that happens. They have no clue. It's amazing. It's a, a, a very, very powerful testimony to design in the body. It's not rational to say you have that capacity 
but that God doesn't see? Where did he get the idea for that if, if he himself doesn't see? But he does see. He sees everything. He's given us the marvelous ability to take in what we can, but he sees everything. He says more than that. He says uh, in verse 10, He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile. You know the old 60s song, um, you thought that nobody could see into your mind, but I can see that you know better now. God sees our thoughts and reads our minds. Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity. Okay, that's set in contrast to the ungodly who are perpetrating all these injustices. And the statement is, you need to be in a place where you will receive from the Lord the instruction to stop this, to repent of this, uh, stop mocking God and submit to him. There's a call for vengeance there, but in the midst of that is a call to repentance. Blessed is a man whom you instruct, O Lord. You, as a child of God, will be happy, happiest and holiest when we submit to that chastening work, that instruction of the Lord, right? We want it. When we go through it, we don't want it. But when we think about it, in times when we're not there, we realize we need it because we, we have to be taught not to sin. And, of course, there's the easy way of that to just read and say, okay, I'm going to stop that. But most of us go through times when we have to be corrected. I say most of us because I'm sure there's a perfect person out there somewhere, maybe first service or something. Or, but... Um, Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law that you may give him rest from the days of adversity. The instruction and teaching out of your law, look where it it lands in verse 13, give him rest. We're going to see a lot about rest. That's ultimately God's destination for his instruction for you and for me out of his word, that we would be able to rest in him. Of course, that, that involves a lot of repentance, a lot of turning to him, a lot of admitting that what we were doing and thinking, all that sin needs to be confessed. The child, the child of God is happiest and holiest when we're submitting to that correcting work of the Lord, that chastening of the Lord. Like the New Testament says, don't despise the chastening of the Lord because it yields that peaceable fruit of righteousness. But more than that, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment will return to righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Again, that's a warning. It's like this. Right now it looks like because of all the injustice and the rotten things that are happening, that judgment is just a wash and it's gone and we don't know where it is. But there's coming a time when God's going to gather that up and judgment is going to be set in righteousness. It's going to be righteously administered. And it's, everything is going to be settled up. Where do you want to be when that happens? I want to be in a place where I've already taken care of the matter. And I don't have to be have that gun aimed at me, so to say. 
I'd much rather have that taken care of now. Well, that's the good news, isn't it, though? You can settle that up now, right? We can settle it up by coming to the Lord and admitting that what he says about our sin need is true. And that's, we find it a wide-open invitation from the Lord that we can be saved from the penalty of sin and enter into that, that relationship with him, that living relationship with him. And because it's all done through Jesus on the cross, he paid our sin in totality and then rose from the dead to prove that it's been paid for. But verse 16, who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. If I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. In the multitude of my anxious, my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. This feels a lot like Psalm 73. You remember that? The guy admitted he's struggling with watching the ungodly just kind of cruise in their convertibles, off in comfort and convenience until he went into the sanctuary of the Lord, and then he realizes a much larger perspective here. Same thing. But he says in verse 19, in the multitude of my anxieties within me, that language is more like, I got all these bad thoughts going on inside. And yet in the midst of that, your comforts delight my soul. Uh, In the midst of all of that kind of runaway mind kind of stuff, Still, I'm going to go and look into and claim those promises of God because that's what's sure, and that's where my comfort is going to be found. Verse 20, Shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you? And that's going on today. There are governments which devise evil by law. And even more so today, you watch the news, you see the government, you know, the uh, vile governments instituting evil around the world. And um, that's not going to go on forever. The Lord knows all about that. They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. There is an end. Um, You know, because right now it appears that evil has its upper hand, um, it doesn't mean that's going to go on forever. It means the Lord and his purposes has a time when that appears to be what's going on, but the Lord is going to um, righteously judge the whole world, and all unrighteousness will be judged. That's the assurance that this cry for vengeance ends with, and that's what we need to end up with, right? When in, in our faith towards God, we realize God's got this all in hand. I don't like it. It stinks. It's painful but I'm going to commit it to you, Lord. I know you will not overlook this, not at all. But Psalm 95 goes with this, I think, very significantly because um, in a lot of ways, uh, those kinds of injustices we can suffer can, can um, be a challenge to us worshiping the Lord. And uh, so Psalm 95, I think, goes very well with um, 
that cry for vengeance because it talks about the call to worship. We worship. We can go ahead and worship God with our mouth. We can worship him in submission, and then we can worship him in obedience, even though there's terrible injustices going on. Psalm 95 says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Um, The language there, obviously invoking images of um, a really boisterous worship, right? I mean, things are really going, really going gangbusters there. Let us shout joyfully. Let us sing to the Lord. Come before his presence with thanksgiving. Shout joyfully again with psalms. Um, obviously, uh, for them, come before his presence, that would be going to the temple. For us, in an analogous way, to be coming to church to worship the Lord there. And uh, remember, these people were writing this with, the, uh, with, with much less light than we have. And yet, you know, if they can find reason and have good reason to worship the Lord in such an energetic way, involving the whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, how much more so ought to be the case for us when we have so much more light understanding what God has done for us with Jesus on the cross. Um, you know, uh, before I got saved, like you probably, you know, you did your own singing, whatever, your favorite songs, um, and, uh, you know, in the shower, whatever, wherever you, you're driving down the road, you look at the guy and he's, his mouth is gone, or I, if you saw me, that might have been me, my mouth is gone, I'd be singing my favorite tune, you'd think, oh, there's nobody in the car, he must be, he's crazy or he's singing, one of those two. Um, You'd be both. You'd be right on both of those for me, um, uh, you know. And and that was to nothing, to nobody. How much more, given what God has done for us, should we be engaged with thanking Him and praising Him with our voice? Um, I mean, if He saved us, if there was nothing else, that would be enough. I mean. He's, he's rescued us. I mean, think about where you would be if God had not intervened in your life. Uh, he, you know, many of us would be unrecognizable. Uh, we were set on a course for real destruction. And yet, because his intervention, we are now saved. We're, you know, the, like it says in the Psalms, he pulled us out of that miry clay and set our feet upon a rock. Um, there is... There is the greatest causes to, to involve our voices in thanking him and praising him. Um, if that's all, but there's so much more. There's who he is, there's what he's doing for us now and continuing to doing what he's going to do in the future. Come on, we were headed for hell. He saved us. We ought to be you know, regurgitating back to him that praise and that thanks that is loaded into our hearts by that when we come and meet with one another to worship him. For the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. He is. He's the one true living God. And, uh, you know, everybody worships something. Even the militant atheists, they worship something. They got a reason. Every person does for what they do. 
when they're, you know, when they get out of bed and their feet hit the floor and they start moving through a very difficult world, something is driving them. And uh, we all have that, whether it's, you know, something that's reasonable in a society, maybe it's, you know, uh, education, maybe it's power, position. Those things will take you somewhere in life. They'll leave you empty, but they'll take you somewhere. You know, but many people had much lower, more, far more debased gods, sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, uh, whatever, whatever you were riding into the sunset into your own destruction. It was ugly. And, uh, you know, there was a, those were lousy gods. Um, we now have been called to worship the one true living God and the great king above all gods. We have the highest causes to lift our voices in praise and worship. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. It's kind of like his heart goes into worship first. In, In thinking about what God has done for him, he praises him for his, you know, his goodness and grace. And then he drags in another good reason, the power of God demonstrated in creation. Um, the heights of the hills, the deep places are his. Um, the sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. For some people, it's just reversed. I don't know what kind of person you are. I, I tend to be the type, the type that, that goes and, and thinks about God in creation first and thinks about his power, um, you know, it's easy to do. I mean, think, look at everything around you, this whole building, everything about it, the clothes you're wearing, the car you drove, the food you ate this morning, everything came out of the earth, all of it. And the Lord created that. We've, we've reformatted a little bit here and there, but every little bit of this, he's sustaining moment by moment. And, and uh, the power and the, the majesty on display commonly easy when you think about it to draw our hearts into worship but you know i think there's the the physical obviously review of creation in verses four and five there i think that's what he's saying but i think there's also loaded into there maybe a little bit of an analogy uh, and that is in our walk with the lords we can go through high places we can go through low places. We can go through times when it's very rich. We can go through times when it's very dry. And we've got to know that, that the Lord also has those in hand. And, and it's a course that he's set for each one of us. So don't, don't get condemned if you're going through a dry time or, or think that something is wrong. This is a course that the Lord is setting. And he has your dry times in hand. That's okay. Um, you know, maybe that dry time is now upon you so that you will appreciate the rich times a little more and that you'll be strengthened in the resolve to just obey him no matter how you feel, no matter what's going on. But, um, again, the call to worship the Lord with our voice. Um, we ought to be free to worship him with our voice, and ought to be. And I guess that's just an, an acknowledgement and, and, and to those of you who are, who are free. Don't be uh, intimidated or subdued by those who, who aren't as free with their voice. You know, feel free to sing to the Lord. Um, 
And uh, then, it, but more more than just our voice, it's um, worship the Lord with our submission. Verse six and seven. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. We can worship God, even in times of injustice, with not only our voice, but also with our submission. Let us bow down, worship him and bow down, kneel. Um, you know, they would do that in the temple. They would, you know, bow down on the ground, an act of uh, reverence and humility, acknowledging that the Lord, it really, it's an uh, idea of I surrender completely. And... Um, you know, in our, in our own times and walks with the Lord, we, in our own arrangement of worship here, we make a place for that in, in um, standing and worshiping the Lord. And I think that's very appropriate to do. But in our own personal times, uh, you know, I find it very appropriate and uh, really needful for my own heart and mind to be on my knees before him. Uh, as sometimes, you know, you go in and you just... Uh, you need to acknowledge him for who he is, and uh, being on the knees, being on my knees, it's very good. It's, it's, a, it's a humbling, necessary humbling statement of submission to the Lord. Uh, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. What well, I thought, this is kind of backwards. Don't people have hands and sheep have pastures? Uh, I think the idea is here is, again, he's got us completely in hand, and everything's mapped out. He he isn't overlooking anything. We can trust that that father filter. Everything is there, and he knows about it all. And we're agreeing with it. Yes, Lord, I'm submitted. I want to do your way. And that's an act of worship. The Lord sees it that way. And we can do that on a daily basis. Every time we get into a situation where we've got the inclination to do things opposite his will, you know, you're driving the car and that person, you know, uh, and you got the thing in your mind saying one thing and and the Lord's will says, no, why don't you just pray for that person that they get home safely? (laughs) Because they need it. And, you know, you you choose the Lord's will. And that's an act of worship. Um, so, you know, in those small things even, the Lord, we can worship him that way, submitting to his will. But then he goes on, the rest of verse 7 and then through the end of the chapter, he's got this call to obedience. It says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me. Though they saw my work for 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it's a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. You think, that was a great psalm up until those verses. (laughs) I was really cruising with you there, Lord, but then this big heavy thing, what is that? Well, um, I think it's appropriately arranged there. Obviously, this, the, the Spirit believes it is, too, because he, he takes it personally. It isn't just an exhortation written by the um, 
psalmist, but he makes it personal. This is the Lord now speaking, because he uses those personal pronouns. And, um, you know, I think it, it goes, obviously, there's something in there about disobedience. And the Lord speaks about it personally, because he, he sees that. You know, there's something about us knowing that he's enjoying our worship that goes with obedience, Right? And when we come to the Lord on Sundays and we want to worship him with our, uh, with our mouths and, and we want to say we're submitting to him, you know, there's just a sense of us, when we do that, mixed with disobedience, we struggle to know whether or not the Lord is really, you know, is, is, is this, we can't fool the Lord in this. We might have it all together outwardly, but if we got a big patch of disobedience that we've dragging in here. You know, there's just a powerful disconnect. We struggle to know the Lord is listening, if, you know, how he's listening. Um, but when, when, we, when we are obeying him and we're yielding to his word, then we can be assured that he's hearing and enjoying our worship, being blessed by it. <clears throat> and, the, you know, the issue is right there in the first sentence, middle of chapter, verse 7 there. Today, if you will hear his voice, if you will, we all want to hear his voice. As a child of God, you want to hear his voice. So God speaks to us and says, you want to hear my voice? Great. Don't harden your hearts. And that's the choice, right? When we hear what we're supposed to do from God's word, will we yield to it or will we say no? It's an act of worship to yield our hearts and instead go to a place of obedience uh, and then he pulls out the examples. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, that's the first one. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation. said, it's a people who go astray in their hearts. They do not know my ways, so I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. That's the second one. Uh, the first one that he pulls out by way of instructional example is uh, when after the exodus... They'd seen all the powerful plagues set them free. Um, they've seen Moses, um, you know, do the miracles, a hand in the thing, the leprosy, all of the, the rod and the staff. They'd seen all of that. And then they got out into the wilderness and they needed water. And then they were going to kill Moses. And uh, that, was a, that was a big failure on their part. Um, the second one was when they stood at the, uh, promised land, getting their intelligence report back from the spies saying it's exactly like what God said. You know, there's grapes the size of volleyballs. There's, um, there, you know, it's just, it's super rich. It's a magnificent place. And then they said, but we can't do it because there's giants. Despite all that they saw and, and experienced with setting them free from Egypt, it didn't translate into them going forward in faith. So the Lord had to say, look, if you're not going to believe me, there's just no, there's no forward progress to be made here anymore. It's just, we're just going to go back and spin our wheels in the desert if, if that's the way it is. Monumental failure on their part. Um, you know, and, and this text right here, middle of verse 7 through verse 11, uh, is actually picked up in the New Testament quite heavily. Um, you go to the book of Hebrews, 
And it's this, these three and a half, four and a half verses is commented on in two chapters in the book of Hebrews. And the, and the gist of what they say there is that, look, th- their example was that um, they had every benefit of instruction and in what God was doing. Like what it says there in the passage, they saw my work. They had a front row seat, personal beneficiaries of what God was doing. They saw it, they experienced, and yet they got to a place, despite having been set free, where they just wouldn't go farther. They wouldn't go any, far, any farther forward. They stopped obeying the Lord. And, uh, um, you know, the comments are, that, that the Hebrews picks up here, it says, it's a people who go astray in their hearts. They do not know my ways. But wait a minute. Look back up. It says in verse 9, they saw my work. They saw it, but they didn't know it. Okay, there's a way in which we can see what God has done for us and still not know it. That's what he's saying. And and it causes our hearts to go astray. It's kind of like the chicken and egg, which came first? I'm not sure. They go hand in hand. But we're called to know his works and keep our hearts in them. Uh, keep our hearts sensitive to what it means. So what's God done for us? Well, we have all that light of the New Testament looking back on what Jesus has done on the cross and what he did for us. Again, that he took our sin upon him on the cross and paid for it completely. And he did it before we ever thought about him in any way. And he just made himself personally responsible for our failure, our judgment before him, he took it. And paying for it then, he rose from the dead to prove it's completely taken care of. Now we could, we could see that. We're supposed to know it and then let it change our hearts. So again, the, the idea here is um, they didn't allow that to instruct them and when they got to that place of having a hard heart, refusing to, to, to learn anything about what God has done for them, there was no forward progress. But look where the forward progress was, was supposed to be, what the Lord wanted for them. They shall not enter my rest. The idea there, like we picked up in Psalm 94, God's goal for you and for me is to rest. It's to rest in what he has done for us be at peace with it and and find rest but if we're not going to accept it in our hearts not going to yield to what it means and what it says we're not going to get there we're not going to be able to rest in it if we mix it in disobedience if we're mixing in a lack of submitting to his will how much rest do you have I don't know if you've been there I've been there you know, you're mixing some disobedience, doing it your own way, and then you go to worship and you go, Ugh. you just don't have that peace. You go to look for him, you realize you've got to straighten some things out before, before we do other things, before we get to the, the worship. And so, you know, the instructions here, I think, out at Psalm 94, 95, are coupled right together. Look, if you're in, in one of those places where you want God to get even for you, that's that the Bible acknowledges that's real. That's okay. Commit it to the Lord. Commit it to the Lord. Don't take it into your own hands. 
And instead, you need to draw into worship. Worship the Lord with your mouth. Worship, worship him with your submission. Worship him in obedience. And uh, um, you'll be able to go forward in the Lord. And you'll trust that he's going to handle it perfectly. He's got it in hand. He's got you in hand. He's got us all in hand. Amen? Let's finish there. Let's stand and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We thank you that your care for us extends uh, across our whole life. Everything, Lord, you see and you know. And, Lord, we want to follow you. Um, We want to be found glorifying you in every way. And so help us to live these things that you have written in your word. Write them on our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen.